I'm your host, Jerrica, and welcome to She Has a Name Too, the show where we discuss the individuality of moms. Motherhood is an honorable and full-time job, but between the dishes and diapers lies a woman with her own hopes and dreams. Here we discuss the woman behind her title, Mother. This week, Barb is joining me again to discuss women in history, particularly about Catherine von Bora. She was born in Germany in 1499 and died in 1552. She has a very interesting story, so listen in as we tell you more about her. Okay, thank you so much again for joining me. Um, I'm excited to talk more about what you've learned during school about women in history. You wrote an amazing essay about Catherine von Bora for one of your undergrad classes. So do you mind if we kind of go over and talk about her and her time period a little bit? Sure. So tell us a little bit about her time so we have a background of what we're talking about. Okay, so I I do want to say I'm I'm not an expert here. I wrote <laughs> I I enjoy studying the lives of women and so in any of the classes I took, if there was any way I could work uh, an assignment into studying women's lives, I did that. So I don't have an extensive understanding of of what her time period was like, but I but I can make some generalizations. She uh, so she was born in 1499, and uh, uh, she would end up marrying Martin Luther, who was part of the Reformation of the Catholic Church. So from the reading that I did about her, it was my understanding that she was not the usual woman. That, um, And I mean, there are always, in any time period, in, in any place, there are always women who kind of go against the grain a little bit. That um, that don't fall right into these categories. And I would actually say that, that in a lot of ways, if, if we were to, to look at women individually, we'd see that in a lot of ways, most of them don't, you know, there's something about special about all of us that we don't necessarily fall into this, this perfect cookie cutter of a woman, what a woman does or who she is in her time period. I think it's safe to say that women's lives were mostly centered in the home and looking after their children and their families. And obviously there would have been women, for example, widows who would have worked outside the home because they had to, to, to feed their children and do that kind of thing. But for the most part, uh, I think women, they were at home and having babies and looking after those babies. Um, Women who in, in the little, in the bitter reading I was doing about uh, Catherine von Bora, she uh, was a little bit different too, because most women who were married to religious leaders also helped their husbands in the, in, in their, their, their theology, theology, their work there. So, um, which she didn't necessarily do. So from that, I think, I think you could probably also assume that, that women helped husbands in their professions as well. That's a little bit, I, really encourage people to read and, and, you know, find things out for themselves too. You know, like I'm certainly not an expert and there's, but there's lots to learn out there. So if you're curious, you could, you know, see what you can find. (laughs) 
for sure. We just want to we just want to dip our toes and kind of get an idea of who she is so that you know, I I mean, when you sent me the essay, I was kind of amazed. Like I was like, "Oh, I didn't know any of this about her or I mean, we learned so much about Martin Luther in school, um talking about the reformation and I never learned about her ever. No, and it's interesting how often that happens that um we don't we don't hear about women. I had that uh actually happen in one of my classes recently uh where we were talking about Louis Riel and he had a sister named Sarah and she had this whole life that I have never heard about in any any of the reading I've done. And so that, yeah, it happens a lot. And I had never heard of Catherine either. So so ladies, if your husband is doing amazing work, make sure your story gets told too. <laughs> <laughs> Can we talk about a little like her background, how she was raised and what brought her and Martin Luther together? So she was born uh, in, like I said, in 1499. She had three brothers and they believe she had a sister. Uh, when she was around five, her mother died and her father later remarried to a widow who had, I think three or so children of her own as well. So here's this man, he's got this house full of children and, and, uh, oh, and I should say too, most of the information that I have comes from a book by, Ruth A. Tucker, and it's called Katie Luther, the First Lady of the Reformation. And so I'm going to call her Katie, too, because that's what she called her in this book. So after her mother died, her father sent her to a convent for her education. And for us now, you know, you think about how hard it is to send your your little one off to kindergarten for their half day of school. And so it seems kind of strange to think about this poor little girl being dropped off at this convent to live and, and go to school. But in the time period, that was actually quite common because of the difficulties with having large families, the financial difficulties of that. And uh, inheritance laws meant that the sons would inherit. So the daughters would have to be married off and they would have to provide a dowry for their daughter. So if they went and joined the convent and, and pursued a, a religious life that took a lot of the financial strain off the off the family. And, and you can uh, imagine for Katie's dad having his own family to care for as, as well as uh, getting remarried and having more children. So the, the, the guess is that perhaps there was a, a financial consideration there. And living in the convent wasn't necessarily all bad for women either. They There was some protection from a lot of the diseases because they were isolated from the rest of the population. And um, nuns were spared the hard work that having a family and the dangers of childbirth brought on. It was a childbirth can be even now can can be hazardous and so you can imagine in the 1500s that that it was likely more so 
And, and the other thing is that that served her well later in life was the education she received there because education for girls was not a priority. So, and, and as we talk about her, you'll see that these things that the, she probably paid a lot of attention at the convent about looking after what is essentially a large house and looking after the, the agriculture and stuff that, that was there and the education that she got, probably being able to read and do math and those those kinds of things that we kind of take for granted that we're able to do. But a lot of people then couldn't read and couldn't do math. And and so those, those she actually, you know, uh, probably got some benefit from being sent to the convent. So she was there until... Uh, she escaped with a group of nuns. They 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 arranged uh, one of the delivery people that would come to the convent. They arranged with one of the nuns' brothers that he would sneak them out. And unfortunately, they don't really know. There's nothing left that she no nothing. Her she doesn't didn't leave any written record of why she escaped the convent or or so it's hard to know exactly why she decided to escape but she escaped in 1523 so she would have been about 23 or 24 years old when she left the convent. When I read this part of your essay, I was like imagining nuns like sneaking out in the dead of night and you know like dressed in their nun uniform, right? So they're all you know dressed in black and they're out in the dead of night sneaking around and I I kind of picture them like jumping in the back of a truck yeah and then I was like no no no, wrong time frame <laughs> yeah no uh yeah the, it was a wagon so probably pulled by horses kind of you know kind of like a truck yeah I just think I think it's so kind of thrilling that she escaped the convent and just went out like and that there was a group of them too that wanted to leave yeah, it's very interesting. And that's something I would be interested in finding out more like, and I, I don't know if that's something you could ever know, but, but what, um, what prompted them to do to do this from, especially when you consider so like she was there since she was five years old. So that was probably it would be the only home she ever really remembered. And so to, yeah, to sneak out in the dead of night and, and head out for something. But I guess there's a lot of adventure stories that start that way for, for young people, right? Like just kind of pack it up and head on out and, and see, see what the world has to offer. But. And a note about the education of these women. I remember learning in one of my history classes that like at the time in the 14, 1500s, education, I mean, to be a teacher or a doctor, you were just, or a lawyer, you were so well educated. But having like a PhD was the equivalent to our high school degrees. Yes. They didn't know as much as we know now. And I mean, you think about like Leonardo da Vinci wasn't that long before Katie's lifetime. And so how much were they still discovering and learning yeah during her lifetime yeah yeah and and she did she lived in a, a period there was a a lot going on uh i don't know the specifics of it but i i believe uh there was something i was reading about that at that time the peasants were revolting as well wanting you know, kind of pushing back against this, the big class difference between, because there was no middle class then, right? So either you were really rich or you were really poor. 
and the majority of people were really poor. So, so those were some other changes that were going on in her lifetime where, uh, I, I think there were, you know, there were these religious and social changes that were happening. So can you tell us about how she met Martin Luther? So she actually had two little romances after she escaped the convent. The group of them, nine, I believe, nuns that escaped that night, three of them returned back to their families. And, and uh, but for the others, returning to their families wasn't an option. The remaining seven of them, it was decided that they would get married. So some of them got married right away. There was one of the nuns was a little bit older and she they found her a job as the head of the girls' school. Katie was, oh, there were 12 of them, sorry. And Katie was the one left that uh, they had to kind of figure out what they were going to do with her. And so she had two romances. She she had a short romance with a university student who was in Wittenberg for the summer. And he returned home and just didn't get back to her. So um, the assumption is made there that, that perhaps his family didn't think a runaway nun was a suitable wife for him. Um, there was another man that she uh, had a courtship with and he, he she ended the, the relationship there. So so that left um, it was it was Martin Luther that was kind of responsible for this group of nuns when they arrived in Wittenberg. So that left him trying to find her a suitable husband. And he, she suggested to him that she should just marry him. And, and he, uh, he didn't think it was such a good idea at first, apparently. He said that uh, in, in a, a letter that he wrote, he said that uh, her self-possession, and this is the quote from his letter, seemed to him difficult or this is a quote from the source I used, seemed to him difficult to reconcile with the traditional role as the man of the head of the family. So, I mean, we get a little peek into her personality there. She doesn't sound like she was, um, you know, I mean, she had already turned down one courtship after, you know, her, her first failed romance, if you want to call it that. And if, if he refers to her as self-possessed, we can kind of imagine that she wasn't actually too worried about it. She, you know, they, they, was, they wanted her to get married and she was like, well, you know, we'll see how it happens. Um, so he didn't really think she was the one for him, but uh, eventually he decided that his desire to get married uh, was most important and, and she, and, and he gave in and he decided to marry her. Now, it's kind of interesting about that is, and, and why Martin Luther's marriage is important is because at that time, church leaders, they took a vow of celibacy. They weren't, none of them got married. And that was one of the things that Luther was pushing back against when he was talking about the things he was, he thought should change in the church. One of those was that he believed that, that, priests should be able to get married and that they shouldn't have to take a vow of celibacy that that they they should be family men and and he and the same thing with nuns that that he thought it was unnatural for women and I don't think this is the way we would look at it today but he thought it was unnatural that they weren't able to fulfill what he considered kind of a biological goal of of having children that was just the natural way of things so to remain celibate 
went against what he uh, believed was the natural way of things. And in a letter he wrote, he said his desire to get married uh, came from a desire to please his father, rile the Pope, make the angels laugh, the devils weep, and it would seal his testimony to his church. So, uh, yeah, I found that really interesting. So they got married in June of 1525 at his home, which was called the Black Cloister, and that's where they started their life together. That is quite the romance. (laughs) The way I interpreted what I read was that she was more... She was the decision maker there that she was like, yeah, you should marry me. But it did work out really well for them in the end, right? It did. It did. And and it does sound like they had an enviable relationship, I, I think I would call it, from, from the letters that he left behind. Uh, unfortunately for, for all of us, the letters that she wrote him were destroyed. So we don't have the, the, the other side of those conversations. We only have his side. Um, and it would be, there is one letter that uh, does remain. And it was a letter that she wrote to her sister-in-law after Luther died in 1546. And the The quote from that is that she says, such a dear man as was my beloved husband, I can neither eat nor drink. In addition to that, I cannot sleep. And if I had a principality or an empire, I wouldn't feel so bad about losing it as I feel now that our dear Lord God has taken this beloved and dear man from me. And so I guess if we don't have lots of her words left, at least we have those because that very, that really shows how deeply she loved him and and how important he was to her. And for that time period, they were a lot older than probably average age when they got married, right? You know, that's something I don't know a lot about. I'm not sure. People's lifespans were shorter. I was reading, you know, the nuns lived to be often till they were about 50, which was considered a fairly long lifespan. And I'm not certain how old he was. So if they got, so she was, you know, she was about 25 when they got married, which yes, I, I would assume is a little bit older. And, and they did, they had, uh, they had six children, two of which they lost in the, in their childhoods, but uh, four of their children lived into adulthood. And that's, well, even the fact, so something to keep in mind too with their story is that he was a monk and she was a nun. So the fact that they got married and had children was scandalous. That uh, So when their first child was born, everyone was certain that this child was going to be hideously deformed because this was a monk and a nun and they were just going against all that was everybody expected in the world and and this child was born happy and healthy and and so that uh, that kind of debunked that myth there that sealed his testimony really <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i i think that's amazing that you know that they were able to work together cuz you talked about um in your essay anyway you talked about how she really like supported his cause and she took really great care of the homestead and or not the homestead i guess that's a north american thing 
the house, I guess. Yeah, she, and and she did, and 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 I think although she didn't directly help him like in his religious endeavors, she kept everything running at home for him. So when 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 she married Luther, Luther the the black cloister was the name of his home and and it was just kind of falling apart around their ears and over the years she managed to to kind of take charge of of the household and the financial affairs and 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 that left Luther free to pursue his work in reforming the church and over over time she looked after their their own children and Luther's sister had died and so she took in their six children then she offered a place for people to stay when they came like to visit so they they had visiting students and pastors and professors they were they were part of that academic world in Wittenberg and and she offered a, a place for them for to stay and to eat I mean she sounds like she was incredibly busy but she was very good at it she was very successful uh, by the end of 1525, she was she had things running smoothly enough that uh, Luther was receiving a regular salary from from what they were doing, what she was there from their home businesses. There, she had increased the production on their lands around their home, and by 1529, she was also um, charging fees to visitors like so she yeah she's running a hotel right and um and and i think when you have a partner like that you know that that really did leave luther he didn't have to worry about all the things that were going on at home and and he was able to do the things that he needed to do uh as far as the reformation of the church came along and she, over the years, so between about 1536 and 1540, they, she supervised the building of additional buildings on their property, stalls for livestock, a brewery, and a bathhouse. She was a busy, busy lady. That is really impressive. I mean, just in five short years, she turned his house into a hotel and then built the business from there. That's I I think about like what I've done in my five years of marriage and it is not that (laughs) (laughs) definitely not building a hotel. That is amazing. And especially for the time period too, where she was a runaway nun and him a runaway monk and just that she was able to build up this business and clearly a reputation Yes. If they were making yeah. money off of it, you know, um, I think that's amazing that they were able to do that. Very cool. Is there any anything else that you want to tell us about Catherine Von Bora? You know, I, I think it's just, I think she kind of sets an example that should remind us that our work as wives and mothers is important. Sometimes... I think we get kind of hung up on some of the more prestigious things in the world. And, and I think that, that what, you know, I mean, no, we're not, I, I haven't started a running a hotel in how long I've been married either, but we need to remember that the work we do as wives and mothers is important too. And, and that the support we, we give to people doesn't make, no, you know, we're not written, maybe not written up, 
in in all the in the, all the history books, but that we're there too, and we're helping out, and that's that's important. That's a beautiful way to end that. Thank you so much. I just I love her story. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation and stay up to date on Instagram and Twitter at she has a name too. She Has a Name Too is a production of Mecco Radio. I, Jerrica Dennison, was your host and was joined by my aunt, Barb Telford. Huge thank you to my husband, Ryan, who entertains our baby while I record. This episode was edited by my brother, Alex Williams. Mecco.